This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I visit with a clever confessional writer and producer who created the TV series, The New Adventures of Old Christine, and Call Your Mother. She served as co-executive producer on Will and Grace and is the author of a book of humorous and unflinching essays on midlife called Aren't You Forgetting Someone? She tells us the responsibilities required to be a television showrunner, explains how her face got covered in poison oak, and reveals the lies she told as a kid. Coming up is my conversation with TV showrunner and recovered helicopter parent, Carrie Lizer. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Hi, Pat. Am I catching you in California or Vermont? I'm in California, sadly. Oh, actually, it started snowing in Vermont, so I'm probably happy to be here. Really? You love Vermont, but not in the winter season? No, I get I get out of Dodge when it starts, uh, when it gets too cold for me, and then I come back to California. I'm a baby about that. I grew up in California, so Vermont winters are a little much for me. Well, tell me about what the escape to Vermont, though, in the, in the summertime has meant to you in terms of rejuvenating your creative side. I mean, for me... To sort of get through stressful work environments and deadlines and all that kind of stuff, I always feel like I have to have something to look forward to. So whether it's a vacation, whatever it is, and Vermont became that place when I was on Will and Grace. They very kindly let me have the month of July off so that I could spend that time with my kids. Because generally speaking, television production, you start work basically the day your kids get off from school. And so I was always sort of missing summer vacation with my kids. And so they accommodated that. And Vermont became the place where we would uh, dream about during the long season and then uh, escape to when they got out of school. And that season you're talking about is pre-production, breaking stories and prepping up, not so much the shooting season. No, well, it's pre-production generally on especially multicam shows and network shows. So you would start pre-production like June 14th or something. And then when I had my own show and was able to make the rules a little bit. I would have the writers start earlier, do pre-production, take six weeks off because we all had kids, hang out with our kids and then come back and, and start shooting, which worked out pretty well, except that sometimes you don't know if you have a pickup for your series. So you have to sort of go into that on faith. Yeah. It's funny. Television's not famous for caring about people's families. No. <laughs> While I enjoyed television, I like it that it's free in my house. I know working on it is a somewhat around the clock thing because you're always thinking about or solving a problem. And it's a sausage machine in that we need a new episode next week. We need a new episode next week. And there's it's somewhat unrelenting during the production time. It is. It feels like you're in the path of an oncoming train, cold sweats in the middle of the night if you know you don't have it or a script comes in and it's not what you want it to be. And yeah, it's it's nerve wracking business for sure. Well, you've done it very well, but I want to take you back to when you 
before you made the transition to a writer, I don't want to talk necessarily about your acting career, but I do want to talk about how you're- Nobody does. No, no, no. Nobody. no. Okay. All right. I'll give you- It's all right. It's all right. No, all right. no. I, what I didn't want to do was I didn't want to take you, I didn't want any post-traumatic stress syndrome. Well, that's true. Times when you forgot lines or anything like that. But I guess I wanted to know how having been an actor informs your writing because I think you're a really, really extraordinary writer. I've read this book of essays, which we'll talk about at length later, but your attention to detail and your vulnerability to write even exaggerated versions of the truth feel like they make the scenes so alive. How much of your being an actor had allowed you to write scenes that actors want to chew on? I think I do write from the perspective of an actor because I was I was an actor for such a long time from when I was a kid. I was at 11 years old, I started. And so I, I think that that is the place I come from. I think I read scripts from the perspective of an actor, things that are actable. And so I think it has served me well in that I've been really lucky with casting that actors do sort of find it actable like I do. And I love actors. So I think I look at it from that perspective, maybe maybe more than somebody who didn't have that background. And you've had some terrific actresses playing lead roles of working mothers who obviously, I don't know want to call it a stand-in or a stunt double or a surrogate, but are playing out the sequences that you're writing. How much fun is that for you to see it come to life with those partners? It's great. I mean, to the people that I, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is a dream. I mean, it's it's actually, it's hard to, sort of do anything after that because she's such perfection. When I sat down to meet her after I wrote The New Adventures of Old Christine, she had read the script and she wanted to meet for coffee. And I thought, I don't know about her because all I had in my head was Elaine and sort of brittle and I didn't see her as a mother and I didn't, you know, she didn't seem very maternal to me. And when we met for coffee, she was my soulmate. You know, she's she's all about her kids. Her favorite place is the grocery store. She is about as earthy and motherly as anybody you'd imagine. So I've been really lucky in that and that the actors that I've worked with, I've had a great connection to. Sarah Paulson was another person I worked with and Kira Sedgwick just recently. And I've just been really lucky that these very nice, very sort of soulful, gifted people have taken these parts. And what starts out as sort of a version of myself sometimes, not always, but Christine was, and then they sort of make it funnier and better. Oh, that was my experience. When Julie Louis-Dreyfus came to Seinfeld, she brought so much to the party, personality, attitude, reaction, always honoring the content. I was just sort of flabbergasted at the way she could treat on Seinfeld the guys like she was one of the guys, and she wasn't going to take any shit as the character. It was really a joy to watch her work, and I found her and her husband, Brad Hall, to be just tremendous people and family people yeah. that I really respected, and I don't want to bash an industry that supplied me with a lot of opportunities, but there are a lot of people who really don't care that much. They Their life work-life balance is all one or all the other. They make a lot of money, and then eventually they're trying to heal a family they left behind or they right. move on to a new family or something. I think that diversifying the workforce has helped that a lot. When I first started writing, which I started kind of late writing, I was the only woman in the room. I started on a show on Weird Science, which was a very male show anyway. But nice guys, one and all, but they were all single. Nobody had families. I was pregnant with twins. And it was sort of, I think, an education for them, 
And it's like, this matters. And I'm not staying there till five o'clock in the morning. Let's get our work done. Because, you know, it's not really necessary to have to trade one for the other. I think if one is organized and knows their own mind, you can do both if it's, if it's important. Yeah. I know that I heard stories of news radio starting their writing room at 11 PM at night and the showrunner taking a shower while they're writing, you know, just nutty fraternity at that point. And then on the other hand, when Harry Anderson had a show, I remember that that was Dave's world. I believe Mm -hmm. they had a thing where, Hey, we're all going to be out of here by 8 PM. If we have to start shooting a little earlier in the day, there was just a little bit more awareness at that point. I worked for great showrunners on Will and Grace. And before that, I didn't really understand that it was a choice you made. I just thought you were sort of at the mercy of how the run through went, how the script came out. And they really, I really learned about organization and sort of knowing their own show most importantly. So there wasn't just endless discussion about what are we doing here. And I really learned from them a lot about being a showrunner and that those overnighters are just not necessary. It's a different way of thinking. I know some people sort of back in the day used to think that if you're not there till five in the morning, you're not working hard enough. I won't name names, but I know there are showrunners that felt that way. And I would drag myself home at five in the morning and think this is untenable with with the family for, fa- for fathers and mothers, I think. Yeah. Not to mention that creatively, it's not productive. You do get a, p- a point in a room where you're looking at a bunch of zombie apocalypse people who are staying alive on cereal and yoohoos. Everybody's waiting for one person to have one great idea so they can all get out of there. It's like an escape room with no exit. I found it miserable. A lot of times people see it as a badge of honor that I slept two hours and then I turned around, the sun was, you know, coming up when I went home. And I just, I didn't see the glory in it. You know, I was, I was past that because I guess, because I started writing when I was a little bit older, I had a family, I wasn't 23 years old in a writer's room and thinking, I want to stay here all night long and be crazy and eat junk food. I'd done that. You mentioned the weird science experience and writing with this younger staff of guys. And I read in your essays, I think that's where you talked about bringing a breast pump in and like you were having to do the things a mom does when they have new twins at the same time, carry the weight of participating in the show. How difficult was that for you to, to maintain those two critically important things? It was not easy. I mean, I think, and the, and the guys that I work with, like I said, they were in a different place in their lives. So I, I was the only person with a child on there. And they saw me at the end of my pregnancy. I fell going up the stairs once going into work and I broke my arm. So I'm gigantically pregnant with twins with a cast on my arm. I can't write Adam Barr, who was one of the great writers uh, on Will and Grace and on Weird Science. But he used to put a trash bag over my head because when I would eat, I would spill some because I was so unwieldy. There was just food flying everywhere. So those poor boys got a real education in, in what their future looked like. It wasn't pretty. I was putting my breast milk in the community refrigerator and they were so disgusted that they got me my own refrigerator from my office so that they wouldn't have to see it anymore. And, but we, we all evolved and they figured out they were very kind to me, honestly. And they really, they treated me great. Let me clarify for the listener. He punched a hole in the trash bag so that it went over your neck. (laughs) I think he did. Yeah. As I recall, I also, yeah. And I was carrying a pen around all the time, but I couldn't feel the underside of my belly. So I just had pen marks on the bottom of my clothes all the time because I'd be walking around with a pen in my hand. I was a disaster and they were very nice about it. But at the same time, I did feel like I really had to show up and work doubly hard. 
harder than they did because I felt like they were looking at me like, mm, is she going to start crying? Is she going to have to jump out to go feed the twins? Is she going to have to do that? So I felt like to counter that, I really had to produce more and better and hold my own in a big way. I think that's true a lot of times for women who are trying to juggle so many things. No, I absolutely agree with you. And it isn't just that it's a gender bias business. I don't think most men understand how critical motherhood is to the survival of a person. Mm. And I'm talking about all the way. Your kids are now out of college, but all the way to have somebody that's building your self-confidence, that's giving you some independence, that's there for you at any moment and every turn, where dads will take it back past the 50s, but where they would typically provide, but they weren't there. And, and many more fathers now are more present than they were. Mm -hmm. I would just say, when you look at many successful people, in terms of people that are have any balance or have any self-confidence, there is a good relationship in some way, or they've overcome a relationship with a mom that was overbearing or not there or didn't approve. I mean, I read a, a Johnny Carson biography. His entire life was spent trying to get his mom to tell him he did a good job, of which she never did. She never patted him on the back. He did the Oscars. He bought her a house in Palm Springs. This is it? Like, that was her attitude. Yeah. I have the feeling that was what impacted his marriages and all the other mm -hmm. things was you just need a thumbs up from your mom. I know so many comedy writers who are chasing the same thing. I mean, I think it's, I think it's sort of a common thing and not everyone, not, not all of us, but you certainly hear that story a lot of just, it's the first call they make when they get an Emmy and, but sometimes you're just barking up the wrong tree. You know, as a friend yeah. says, you're, going to the hardware store for oranges, but, but <laughs> that chase and that desire to sort of please your parents, I don't think it ever goes away. I mean, I know 80 year old writers who are still chasing that. Well, as is the sense that we're a fraud from the beginning, when you get your first job, I don't know how it was for you, but you go, well, what business do I have here? I didn't, I personally didn't finish college. I always say I went for 90 days, same as cash. <laughs> yeah. You and I are in the same boat there. And so, yeah. But I look back at it and I wouldn't trade the life experience for a second to go back and get a piece of paper. And people ask me sometimes about a resume and I think, okay, I'm 60. I've never had a resume. Mm -hmm. I've never had to prove by a list of jobs I had if I could do the next job. It comes through other forms of referral and and maybe somebody needs a creative consultant or they need a something funny written or something. Yeah. And it's weird when you have a skill set where if you can do it, it's it's like being a safe cracker. I often say, <laughs> you got all the other people on the bank job, but you can't get in that vault without this. So if you want, I'll do it. And I don't do it to be cocky. I'm just saying, yeah. that's all that dude does is listen to tumblers fall into place. And then right. when it's open, everybody gets the money and splits it up. It's always trial by fire too. Like until you get there to the job and you think, I think I can do that. Like you said, I didn't have a college degree. I didn't, when I got my first show on the air, I had no business doing it. I'd been a writer for a day and a half. I had been on one show part-time and my agent said, just write the pilot. Nobody's pilot gets picked up. You'll, you'll pocket the cash. That'll be the end of it. You'll go home and hang out with your kids. And I was like, okay. And so I wrote it and they said, oh, they're going to film it. I was like, oh no. And and then uh, he said, just film the pilot. It's like putting on a play. It won't get picked up. Do you know how many pilots are filmed every year? You'll be fine. This point I had thyroid cancer and three kids under three and it got picked up. It got put on the air for the fall season. 
I'd never, I'd barely been on a television show, let alone run a TV show. I don't think they do it anymore. I think they would have put supervisors on, but at the time they didn't, they just went, you seem good. And I was bringing the kids to work and I thought I had to take every note. I thought that that was my job was to sort of collaborate completely. And it turned into a show and an experience that I had no idea what it was anymore. And I learned so much, but I'm lucky I got a second chance after that because I didn't do a very good job and I didn't put out a very good show. What was the name of that pilot? That was called Maggie Winters. And we did 13 episodes, Faith Ford on CBS. And it was just, I was just flying by the seat of my pants. And I, and I really didn't have the training. And I think I would say that to anybody. I would say it to myself that I went to Will and Grace after that and learned how to run a show from people who knew how to run a show. So that was like homeschooling yourself. You were a freshman class of showrunner school, but with no, no guidance counselor. No, it was terrifying. It was, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what a showrunner is responsible for. But I think most of the listeners here don't know that there are very few of them in the world. You know, they, anywhere there's a show, of course, there's somebody running the show. But what that means, what the responsibilities are, soup to nuts from the creation and the concept. And they aren't always the creator, the showrunner, but in many cases they are. I'll talk about showrunners that are also the creators because that's what I've done is, and it's just, it really is from the initial concept through everything that you see on the screen is the decision that runs through the showrunner. So it's hiring of crews and casting and supervising the scripts and hiring the writing staff and running the writer's room. I mean, it really feels corporate these days. There's so many cooks in the kitchen, unfortunately, so that it's also managing all the noise that sort of comes in and trying to create something. So hold on to whatever the idea you had and, and your voice and your story that you want to tell, because it's really easy to get lost. It's really easy because there's there's so many people weighing in. There's the studio and the network and, and actors sometimes have a lot of power and director and all these people come in and get into your head. So I, I think that the main thing that a showrunner has to do is sort of hold on to their vision and and lead people. And also for me, I think the best thing that I can do is surround myself with super talented people and then try to bring out the best in them, you know, have a supportive, healthy environment to work in where people feel safe and people feel like they get to do their jobs. And I'm not super controlling in terms of like, I have a costume designer, Lori Eskowitz, who's been with me all the way through. She did Maggie Winters and Will and Grace and Christine and everything and uh, Call Your Mother she's brilliant at her job. So when they call me down to come look at the clothes the actors are wearing, I'm like, look at what I'm dressed in. Ask Lori. You know what I mean? But there are some showrunners who will, you know, they pick, they micromanage. Me personally, I don't think it's the way to go. Let the people who are good at their jobs be good at their jobs. I'll try to be good at my job. And then I, I think people, when you do that, feel ownership of the show more so as opposed to just, you know, they feel, they feel invested in the show. They feel invested in the project you know, or whatever it is that you're doing the play. And I, I really, for me, it makes for a nice work environment too. So that's what I see my job as, as a showrunner. And and there are different styles. I've, I've worked for great ones and nasty ones. So to encapsulate what you're saying, and it's really important is empowering all of those different departments with somebody who's capable and giving them something to run with. Like why micromanage every pair of socks and skirt and shirt on the shows that I've worked with, uh, sometimes I would just say to them, this character's more J. Crew than they are Tiffany's. And then they could get it. Okay, so that's right. what that woman is and whatever. And I wasn't trying to make an 
international action movie that needed more cleavage. Like that to me right. was a waste of, of, of talking to a customer. Right. So, but I'm interested then how you select those people. Now, obviously some of these folks have been with you all along, but the, mm-hmm. the magic question that other writers, people who want to be on a sitcom is what is a showrunner looking for? What is, what is your SWAT team made up of at your round table that maybe they can fill a, a slot as a comedy person or a story person? What, kind of qualities are you looking for in in writers when you're putting together a staff? I think the hardest thing to find are people who are good with story. To really know how to tell a story and break a story, it's really hard to find those people. So for me, that's the first person that I would look for. And any staff, I think is sort of lightning in a bottle. The terrible shows I've worked on had the same amount of talented people in the writer's room as the great shows I've worked on. And it's just a matter of like the the concept with the script with this combination of people makes magic or it makes dog shit. It's not because those people around the table were any less talented than the people on the on the great show. So it really, it, it's a little bit of magic, which is very nerve wracking because then you can't control it. And I think that's the thing that when this has gotten sort of more corporate, that I think that the the powers that be do think that it's science or that you can control it. And if you plug this, you know, if you have this many women and this many people of color and this many lesbians and this many, then you've got to show. And it's like, it's kind of magic and it drives them crazy. But for me, I I look for, in terms of when I'm reading scripts, I like to read original material. I think that tells me the most about people. It used to be that you had to send spec scripts of all kinds. I just, I don't think that gives me as much information as when I read somebody's play or their short film they did or the pilot they wrote or the movie they wrote. That sort of gives me a better sense of who they are and where they're coming from and sort of if given the choice, what story would they tell and see if there's any, not, and it doesn't have to be the same. i I've worked with people who have nothing in common with me in terms of our life stories, but it's just a, it's just sort of a sparkle and a voice. I like that. I applaud the idea of reading original material. That always excites me. And mm-hmm. I know that my friend, Matt Goldman, that's an associate of yours as well. Yeah. We had written a play called Bunk Bed Brothers and this freaky little play with just a couple of characters was the spec script we sent to Castle Rock that got us our jobs on Seinfeld right after the pilot. It's an unheard of win, a lottery ticket to to walk into that scenario, having had no other television writing experience for me. I think Matt had written on a few things, smaller things, but mm-hmm. it was freaky how valuable having written that script was, having had something to give to them that had our voice in it. Yeah. And I understand that because I, you know, I've read Bunk Bed Brothers and I know, I mean, I know Matt better than I know you, but to me, that would give me so much more information than if you wrote a spec script of news radio. That just doesn't tell me very much other than that you can, you know, structure maybe, and that you've read enough scripts or studied enough writing, gone to a writing class or something so that you at least know, you know, how the page is supposed to look, which is fine too. But yeah, I think that that crucial information comes from a play that, that is somebody's, you know, passion project. Right. And I think that the term situation comedy, it's the situation, it's the story that's the armature that keeps us coming back to visit those characters every week. And mm-hmm. the comedy is, while you want it to be great, is decoration. If the story doesn't work, nobody's hanging around for a half hour. And if the characters aren't people that you want to spend time with, especially, you know, in a, in a series, that that's really, I think, 
what it becomes about. It's intimate. It's living room. It's a relationship that you form with these people. So I think those characters and story, I think, are everything. I mean, the jokes can always come. There's a million funny people around. Even the fewer amount of funny people can come up with a million funny things. There's always a way to dress that up and, and take it to the fair. I'm always so much more interested in story and character and and what makes sense and where they're going and, and where it's coming from. Going back to what we were talking about before, I think maybe that's why actors, even though sometimes I'm doing sitcoms, multicams, which are sort of considered fluff, I think that coming from it from a real place, why is this human being acting like this? Where does it come from? And worrying about the jokes later, not starting from the place of big gags. I think actors maybe can tell that and they read that and they have something to sort of sink their teeth into, even if it's a sitcom and something sort of light and fluffy, if it's about something. How has writing been a lifeline for you in times of transition from acting to writing to motherhood to your kids going off to college? And how has writing served you? First, it saved me because as discussed, I had no skills. I started acting when I was 11 years old. I didn't. I mean, I'm telling you, I didn't. I was terrible in school. Uh, My first job was raking up horse manure so that I could ride horses for two hours. You know, I really, I I wasn't focused because I thought I'm an actress. I already know what I'm going to be. So I don't need to invest in anything else. And I went to acting classes and I was fairly successful as a kid and as a teenager. I made money. I thought, well, this will go on forever. I didn't think past that and I didn't prepare myself for any other kind of means of support. So when the acting dried up and I stopped getting jobs and stopped being able to support myself, I was in a blind panic because I didn't know how to do anything else. This is so dumb, but I'm going to tell you. And so I went to a psychic. These are my favorite things is when people... Yeah. Say the dumb thing. So you said you went to a psychic. I went to a psychic, Maria Papa Petros, and she held on to my keychain. And she said, if you're, if you continue to act, you'll be moderately successful. If you write, you'll be successful beyond your wildest dreams. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> like that seems hard. You know, I, I want to act people brush your hair. I don't want to, it seems so hard. And I, but I was really out of options. I thought this is, it was as close to a career counselor as I had. So I wrote uh, Mad About You was on at the time. I wrote a speck of Mad About You. And because I sort of understood the rhythm of their voices and it and it came out fast. And then I wrote a play. And I was so broke at the time that I was typing people's scripts, typing people's scripts for 50 cents a page to try and pay my rent. And one of the people whose scripts I was typing was a guy named Jimmy Vallely and Jimmy and Jonathan Schmuck. And Jimmy's been on Arrested Development and he's a comic and he's fantastic and he's wonderful. And I said, would you read this play that I wrote? Because I was always typing their scripts and he, and he read it and he said, I'll put this up in a theater. I'll produce it. Oh good. I'm going to star and I'm going to get more acting jobs. I still was sort of not on the writing bandwagon. So he so generously and his partner, Jonathan Schmuck, so generously paid, put it up in a theater invited every showbiz person they'd ever met in their lives. We did, I think, three nights or something like that. I got my first agent out of it. I did not a single acting job, by the way. And ultimately, one thing led to another. And for as many doors that were closed to me as an actress, where I was sort of just knocking, let me in, it seemed like I was being told yes as a writer. It was easier than a time that I'd had before that and with acting. So I had to embrace it, but it took me a minute because I was really reluctant. I just, I identified as an actress. That's who, that's everything that I was. And so it took me a minute to make the shift and even believe that I was a writer. Cause I, I thought, well, I kind of wrote this goofy thing, but I don't think I'm a real writer. 
And was that a writing writing agent then, not an acting agent that you got? That was a writing agent that I got from that and then started doing freelance things, which led me to Weird Science. And then Weird Science was really possibly the most valuable job I had because it was a show that I didn't particularly relate to. I didn't like it very much about two teenage boys and computer genies. It was sexist. It was, you know, I, there's, there was not very much I liked about it, but I still had scripts due and assignments and I had, you know, two weeks. And so I feel like that turned me into a real writer because it wasn't just floating on passion and I feel moved by this now. <laughs> and, oh, I've, I've come up with a great, I've been inspired in the middle of the night. This was homework and this was discipline and like sit down and write it and make it good. Even though you don't, feel any connection to the show, the characters. There was nothing about it that was in my wheelhouse. It was so good for me because I think it's what turned me into a real writer, like a writer that has to work on deadline and sometimes has to work when they're not inspired and when they're not, they're not feeling it. You still have to turn something in. That discipline is critical to being in the game. A craft, yeah. everything is built a page at a time, a chapter at a time, a book at a time, a screenplay at a time. You can't do it. If you just say one day I'm gonna, what, I'm thinking of a funny idea that's going to be cool 20 years from now, forget it. You actually yep. have to put the words on the paper. Yep. Yep. You, and you can't wait to be inspired because it just doesn't always happen. It just, it, it, it is a job at that level, especially. In your book, aren't you forgetting someone? You talk about having been a liar as a kid. I think you said made up <laughs> lies or something. I, I did. I was a liar. I was a liar. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I'm here to tell you that was your training for making up stories for every part of your life. So mm. you were making up stories as a kid and you're making up stories now. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you mentioned that you were an actress at 11 years old. What kind of lies were you telling and what was the benefit? I saw with my own kids and I realized, because I realized I did too, when someone lies about things they don't need to lie about, those were mostly my lies. Like, you know, I, I would say, there's no trouble you're going to get into. Why are you lying about that? And I would just make my stories more colorful. And I think you're right that it's what served me now as a writer. But back then, everybody thought I was overly dramatic. I mean, I often got caught saying that I'd done something that I hadn't actually done. Yeah. I mean, good training, but a little bumpy getting there. You're not alone. If this was some kind of support group, I would have to confess. And I don't remember... <laughs> I don't remember the outcome, but I, I had pictures. You know how you always got your class picture in your little plaid shirt or whatever. So right. I had some from previously, like in third grade and fourth grade. And there's very little difference in what I looked like. And I put these two pictures in my wallet when I was in junior high. And I told people that I had younger twin brothers. And I, <laughs> I lived by this idea that made no sense at all. And then in high school, somebody later told me, uh, you were trying to go out with me and you told me that you had some disease that you weren't going to live that long. Like, I, like <laughs> I, I don't know how desperate I was at that moment. Like, now do you want to go out with me? I'm going to die before summer. You know, like, I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. But, I but, understand. Yeah. Getting attention. I mean, are you a middle child? I am exactly that. As am I. I really, I think that it really speaks to that. Like just somebody, please pay attention to me. The worst thing that I ever did was we were on this big family camping trip and with a bunch of other families and I was just out in the cold. My, my sister was super smart. She was everything. My younger brother was cuter than I was. I was awkward age and nobody was paying attention. So I found poison oak and I rubbed it all over my face. I got... <laughs> The worst case of poison oak, 
my eyes swelled shut, my nose swelled shut. I had to go to the hospital. They had to give me shots in my face for weeks. And they were like, oh, she must be allergic to poison oak. It's so weird how it's gone on her face. And I, I mean, I got a lot of attention. <laughs> I had no idea that that was going to happen. I missed the first month of ninth grade I was because I was home with my Frankenstein face. I mean, it was really embarrassing and bad, but you know, I got what I wanted. So it didn't cure me. Have you landed face down in poison oak since? No poison. I don't pretend to be sick. I, I'm a little too superstitious for that. I, I'm, a, I'm afraid that it will manifest if I, if I, my karma will be bad. So also I dated somebody who pretended to have cancer so that I would date oh. him. So it wasn't you, oh, but no. it was somebody else. So yeah, that's, that's a line I haven't crossed. Well, I, I apologize that I, I don't think I had cancer. I think I, had, <laughs> I can't even remember the disease I chose if it was lupus <laughs> or I tried to pick something people couldn't look up quickly. Sad. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I, it wasn't very well thought out. No, they re- it rarely is. Creatively, tell me what the value of having a notebook by your bedside is, because I think that that's something you subscribe to. It is. For a while, I would leave myself messages. You know, I'd call myself in the middle of the night and leave myself messages. I'm working when I'm not working. I think that's true for most writers. And in fact, our friend Matt Goldman aside, who is a worker be and sits down and works for hours and has a schedule and all of that. That's never been who I am. So I, I have to sort of go over here and do something else so that the voice that's in my head can, can have some space to work. So the, the ideas sort of come up from behind me a little bit, if that, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I really, if I sit down and try to be funny, smart, or interesting, it doesn't happen. But I really, that that's why I go on these vacations, why I travel, it's why I go to Vermont, because it's while I'm doing other things and occupying another part of my brain that that stuff can sort of gestate. And that happens to me a lot in the middle of the night too. I'll wake up and, you know, half of it is garbage. Like I look at my notebook in the morning and it's like, well, that, I thought that was so good in the middle of the night. And most of them are, are not genius, but uh, my middle of the night thoughts. But sometimes, you know, there's something that, clicks for me from a dream or something that clicks for you or, you know, something I've been trying to solve and I've been turning over and turning over and then suddenly it's, it's there and you can't really summon it, which is the terrifying part too, because it's like, what if it doesn't happen? What if the, the, that, whatever that genie thing that's working doesn't happen. And so then that's where of course the discipline comes in and you have to do it anyway. But a lot of my work is, doesn't look like work. It's when I'm walking my dogs and, planting my garden and riding my horses. All, all very valuable though. In in the yeah. many writers that we've talked to on this podcast, they do talk about the importance of stepping away, of exercising, of walking, of doing something yeah. where your mind is occupied elsewhere. And it lets it, it does let it come forward. So you're not the only one being stalked by a good idea, but, but yeah. muses have a hard time being chased. Like if you, make an appointment to meet the muse at your desk at that time, it will often disappoint you. It won't show up till three days later on the right. camping trip. Yeah. yeah. And, and then it'll, it'll bug you. And th- which is why the writing down in a notebook uh, again, well, I just referenced Matt and I, when we first wrote punk bed brothers, we had a lot of our good ideas, either going over to the wits at golf course, which is a par three uh-huh. golf course where we'd take a lunch break or we would walk down to a Seven Eleven to get a Slurpee. And if we didn't have a notebook, literally, if we didn't write that, if there was a Bermuda Triangle between the 7-Eleven and back to our <laughs> desk, 
You know, where we're like, what was that funny thing you said in front of that? There was a little hole in the wall cocktail bar that somehow would suck the ideas into that. And as we passed it, so always, I tell people always write everything down. You can sort through it like a box of buttons if you want and find the good ones. But when you do, you don't need a high percentage. One out of 20 things is a gem. It's you're sifting gold is all you're doing. I'm a big believer. I have notebooks scattered everywhere, all over my house. I have them in my car. I have them at my office. I have them everywhere, which is incomprehensible scribbles in them for the most part. You know, somebody's going to have to clear this out when I drop dead, but, and, and try to crack the code of what all of this means. And it doesn't mean anything. You know, I look at it sometimes. I'm like, what was that? I think it was great, but I don't know what it is anymore. I'm a big believer in that. And cause I do, I lose things and you know, you've moved on to something else and life is busy and all that. We talked about putting travel as a carrot in front of you and also just enjoying going other places and having those sorts of adventures. How has this pandemic pause, what did you do to satisfy that need with us not being able to go other places and meet with other people in the same way? I mean, like everybody, I struggled with it. And I really, I was, I was much less productive during this time, even though I thought, well, this will be okay for me. I'm trapped in my house with my computer. It's perfect with no distractions. I can't do any of the usual things I do to run away from home. Boy, I'm going to write another book. I'm going to, I'm going to create 15 TV shows. None of it happened. I really, I think uh, with just too much time with myself too much time just in the same place. I, I really, I didn't fare very well creatively during this time. So, uh, you know, I'm hoping that it opens back up. The other thing that stopped happening for me that really works for me is I go to a, a writing class once a week and we sit around a table and people are working on different things. It's where I wrote my book. People are working on novels and poetry sometimes, but mostly books. We would go and my teacher, Claudette Sutherland, she, you come to her house and you sit around a big table and you read your work. And what that did for me and what was really important for me is even if it was self-imposed, it was a deadline. And so I felt compelled to write every week. And without that, I really need somebody waiting for my writing. I need, I need to know that somebody is waiting to read something. For me, I don't write just for the sake of writing. It, 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 it is my job. You know, I'm just, I'm not that self-motivated. So that class really served me well in that every week it felt like a waste of time. It felt like a waste of money to show up there without anything. And so it really motivated me to write something. And I also wanted to get a good reaction from the other people around the table. My, you know, it was an ego thing. It was, you know, it was all those things combined that lit the fire under me. And that had to stop. Claudette is 80 years old and you know, we had to protect everybody's health and do all of that. And so that had to stop when the pandemic hit. So that was one way that I really lost something that was very mm. important, very important to my process for sure. I imagine that is something that unbeknownst to you, you were grieving because that accountability is critical. I'm the same way. No deadline. <laughs> I'm not going to give you, I'll put it off till the next thing. Tell me when it's due or what's showtime or what do I have to do? And I'll be there. But it sounds to me like maybe you also learned a lesson in moving from television to writing this book in this transition that, that there's a difference between writing for capital or commerce and writing for expression or pleasure, which mm-hmm. is a, a different kind of pain because yeah. 
because as you say, it, it it's you with your thoughts, with this deadline, with, with anything can distract you. Gardening, everything is more important than mm-hmm. sitting down to write for expression sometimes. However, you did it in the book really, really effectively. I have to say, I'm a fan of essay writing because it's, they are breezy chapters and, you know, episodically it's a path. You don't have to know exactly where it's all going to complete something. Mm-hmm. But I'd love to hear about that. It seems like this was developed over a period of time and and possibly through these workshops. It was part of this class and it started as I, I didn't know what I wanted to work on. I was in a very transitional place in my life. My last kid had left for college alone in my house deal. I had a deal at Warner Brothers for many years, been 10 years or so, and that ended. And so all the structure that was part of my life was suddenly gone. All the things that uh, kind of the reasons to get up in the morning, you know, I didn't have soccer games to go watch and kids to feed and uniforms to buy. But like a lot of people, when I'm very busy and have a lot going on, I'm more productive. I, cause I have to sort of schedule my time and I have to sort of, my brain functions better. And I felt that I was you know, suddenly just adrift in this, you know, in this house, in the world, you know, I didn't have an office to go to in the morning. And that was really hard in terms of trying to, trying to settle my brain down. I just, I felt like I was foggy. So I started this class, not knowing what I was going to write. And I really just started writing these sort of rants about everything that was bugging me, which is awfully easy for me to do. And (laughs) Claudette said, you know, keep going. And so I didn't know what it was, which was also kind of a great difference in that it was about the process as opposed to the end result, which is television is about the end result. It's, you know, process is there, but it really is about get it on its feet, film it, show it, you know, have a lot of people watch it. It's really about your end result. This was completely about process. And I was just gathering stacks of paper with sort of silly things I was thinking and stories that I thought were funny. And occasionally I would get mortified and embarrassed and thought, I can't write this anymore. Who wants to read about my nonsense? You know, it felt when you write something that's that personal memoir, it's, it can make you feel it's kind of embarrassing a little bit. And it's like, cause it has to be different than a journal. You know, it, it has to have some entertainment value and some, something other than, you know, just writing my diary. And so occasionally I would get stopped by that self-consciousness but then as I kept going, I found it sort of the most joyful writing I've done because it was just, it was for no one and for nothing. And I didn't know what was going to come of it. I had left my longtime agent at the time and I, and I was going with CAA, the big giant agency. And they said, you know, come in for your meeting, your intro meeting. And I walk in and they said, bring anything you have that you want us to look at. And it was a, a huge conference table with all, mostly, I think there was one woman, but mostly men in suits. And I come in there with my stack of papers, which is basically my uterus on a platter, you know, I mean, just so right. personal and so female. And so, you know, I was like, well, I have these that I'm writing. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a TV show. I don't know if it's a book. I don't know what it is. I'm, I just know I really like writing them. And to their credit, this table full of, of suits they got it and they really, they supported it and they got behind me. They turned me on to a literary agent in New York and it worked out and they, and they really supported it that it was, you know, it wasn't going to make them a dime. It wasn't going to make any of us a dime. It was just purely for creativity sake. And it was the first time I'd really done that. I would like to tap into that again, because I think it was really valuable. I'm just going to repeat the title of the book for the, for the listener, which is, aren't you forgetting someone? 
And it is a, a fun read. It's funny. It's truthful. And I know that there's there's a wink in it, but also there's lesson after lesson about surviving midlife, the battles of midlife, of, of your kids being gone. You talk about raising animals and chickens, and I'll call this going through henopause because <laughs> it seemed like you were talking to the chickens and to the horses <laughs> and to the dogs and even making up voices for them. The, the, your wit and your willingness to be honest from the dedication at the beginning where you say to your kids, uh, I forgive you for leaving me uh, to live your lives, which is such an honest thought for a person, which is that everything changes. I dropped my son at college and I could have opened a Kleenex stand at that for every parent. I didn't yeah. know I was going to be bawling and whatever. And I tried to keep a stiff upper lip, but I'm reading this and I know that it's a female perspective. And so much of it, it would be invaluable to anybody, any mother that's had that change happen to them. But it's also, you have this acerbic, irreverent voice that rides alongside the being honest part where you're not afraid to show what your brain thinks that you probably don't say all this out loud. Do you? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't say it out loud. And, and in fact, I had to sort of go back after it was done and, because I didn't really think ahead that people were actually going to read it. Relatives, my kids, my, you know, and because I just wrote it with abandon uh, which is a great way to write. And then I had to go back and say, oh, I can't say that. Oh, I have to change that name. Oh, I, you know, I didn't even tell my mother that I wrote a book because I knew she would be so mad. And then she found out because somebody posted something on Facebook or something. <laughs> She's like, you wrote a book? <laughs> and I said, don't read it. Don't read it. Uh, you know, I do think what I did learn about it is I, I say it's female, but honestly, what I learned is from that group of suits that sort of we're all going through a similar age to me. I'm 60 and they, you know, similar age where their kids were leaving the house and they were all having these feelings. And in fact, Brad Hall said to me, cause their kids are a little bit older than mine. So they were a little bit ahead of me on the road. And he said, when Henry is first left, he said, as bad as you think it is, it's so much worse. <laughs> I was like, Oh no. And so I had that sort of in my mind waiting and I think everybody sort of falls apart in their own way. The dads do, the moms do. I went to this playwrights conference and I was sort of toying with the idea of empty nest in a play and, and the mother and father fall apart and their marriage falls apart and all of these things happen. And this guy that was in there who had young kids at home said, I just don't know. I mean, why is she having such a big reaction? She knew the kids were going to leave for college. How, it can't be a surprise. And I said, oh, no. It is. It's a surprise. Like you don't think they're actually going to leave. Like even though everything that you do, you know, um, SAT prep and tutors and ADHD medicine and, and, you know, everything, everything that you throw at them to try and help them be successful and actually walk out of your home, you realize that was the worst plan I, I ever had. Why, why did I do that? And, and to my kids, I said, go get out of Los Angeles, get as far away as you possibly can, live your life, see the world. So now my daughter lives in London and my son is in DC and my, you know, my third son luckily is home, but not for long. I don't imagine. Yeah. It's very hard to be a good parent and then stop being the kind of parent that you went when, when they're at home, it seems important to be overseeing things when they're not at home. It drives them out of their minds. You know, that you're, it, it's all well intended, but they, they don't need you to say, 
have you done this? Did you do that? Did you make that happen? And and I I taught my son a phrase called uh, API, assume positive intent. <laughs> what I'm doing may not seem like valuable, but I I mean it. It's well meaning. Yeah, it's 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 a hard adjustment. You know, I mean, my my sons in particular are terrible about keeping in touch. So I I used to just have to text proof of life, please, and they'd just send me a you know a thumbs up emoji because otherwise you're just here like twisting in the wind. And I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna adopt the proof of life because I have one <laughs> in the house and I don't know if he's dead inside the walls sometimes. Yeah. Absolutely capable of everything. So he doesn't need to come out. But you kind of go, how much longer can you be in there? You know? You just... <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been a terrific conversation. I appreciate your honesty about deadlines and structure and notebooks and writing groups. I hope that the listener can take something away from it. I would encourage them to look into some of your other work. Uh, I'm looking forward to your next chapter, whether that comes in the form of a, another book or a play or a sitcom. Uh, it, it feels like you have a really great voice that people respond to. I wish you continued success. Thanks, Pat. It was great talking to you. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common. And dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to creativity.